I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. I'm here today with Roger Grimes, data-driven defense evangelist for Before, the world's first and largest new school security awareness training and simulated phishing provider that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering. To learn more about Before, visit knowbefore.com. Roger, welcome. Another week, another episode of Cybergrimes. Yes, always glad to be back here, and thanks everyone for listening in. So, Roger, the BBC reported earlier this week on how the UK privacy campaign group Big Brother Watch has made a complaint against face recognition search engine PimEyes. And PimEyes, for anyone unfamiliar, it enables people to look for faces and images that have been posted publicly on the internet. And what Big Brother Watch is accusing PimEyes of is of facilitating stalking. They're claiming that PimEyes unlawfully processes the biometric data of millions of UK citizens, arguing to the UK data and privacy watchdog that it does not obtain permission from those whose images are analyzed. So... Roger, with that background, I also know that you recently wrote an article on biometric data, and I'd like you to tell us about that shortly. But first, who pays to use a service like PimEyes, and are services like these on the rise? I found this story really interesting. Yeah, you know, they've been around for decades, but I think I got alerted to it just a couple of years ago, two or three years ago at most. And I do a lot of reverse image searches, and I have for probably a decade looking for scammers. I have a lot of people that reach out to me about romance scams and, you know, romance scams are always using pictures of models. If they're trying to appeal to to the men, to the victim, the male victims, it's usually some Russian, Ukrainian, Slovakian model, you know, that's incredibly beautiful. The women that are typically scammed in romance scams are sent pictures of, I would say in general of men in their 50s or later that are military people. And so, you know, I get contacted by people all the time, a little bit less so now. I used to be contacted more when I wrote actively for InfoWorld and CISO Magazine. I wrote some articles on romance scams there, and I don't. I stopped at the end of 2019, and people have a harder time contacting me. But I still do get emails all the time from people. And typically before they contact me, and they've got to research my email address a bit, I'm all over the internet, but I would say that the average person that contacts me, their loved one themselves or their loved one, usually their loved one has lost a quarter of a million dollars. So, you know, they're in this big financial hole. It's usually a brother, a sister, a spouse, a daughter, a friend trying to, they're coming to me going, please help me. How can I convince them that this romance that they think they're in is a scam and they're just pouring away their money, they're selling their house or selling their art. I mean, really, it's really sad. And One of the things I did started to do early on is these reverse image searches. So they would send pictures of the scammer had sent the victim, and I would do reverse image searches using Bing and Google. And let me say, I had varying levels of success. I was pretty good at it, but maybe I got only maybe 70, 80% success rate. Well, when I learned about PEMIs, I went in there and started doing reverse image searches. You know, at the time, they would allow you to do a couple of searches for free. I was amazed by how accurate it was. Like it really was game changing. So I think I wrote it about PEMIs. I certainly posted about it. And, you know, they have this high quality service for reverse image searches. And I was using it in a legitimate way. So I have to be one of the people that are, you know, not stalking somebody, but just trying to, although on a side note, whenever 
I sent to the romance scam victim, here is the website, the Facebook site or whatever of the real person, the person that's scamming you that you're in love with. That's not their name. That's not that person. And the amazing part was once I told them that they were being lied to, that the person's name and the person's picture they'd been sent was actually just stolen from some other random person's account. The surprising thing is never did that stop the romance scam victim from being scammed. Like that was one of the most wild lessons, at least from that, is that, you know, you could prove that they were being lied to and either the victim was so in love that it just didn't change anything or oftentimes the scammers actually are ready for that potential and they'll just go, yeah, I had to send you this fake thing because I'm being tracked or somebody's after me or I'm really a famous movie star and my wife, you know, or I want to find out if you'd be in love with me if I was just a normal person and not really this other famous person I am. You know, I was amazed that proving somebody's identity, that they'd been lying about their identity did not stop the romance scam victim from sending the scammer money. The saying is the heart has a mind, which the mind knows nothing of. So I would say again, so I've used these services legitimately. They're absolutely an interesting question, challenge, and privacy invasion. What PIM would tell you, PIM Eyes and others would tell you, is that they're only collecting public images. So they're doing screen scraping across Facebook and Twitter of profiles and stuff like that. So there is this sense that they're going to claim they did it legally. And let me say there's been several other companies all over the world that have collected billions of images of people. And certainly they are either screen scraping, legally screen scraping, or they're just paying Facebook, Twitter for the images. I mean, you know, the US government and, you know, the UK government and, you know, Russia and China and all the stuff, you know, they've got everybody's image and they either screen scraped it or they just paid for it. It's far more efficient to just pay Facebook. Facebook is allowed to sell your image, right? When something's free, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, you know, when it's free, you're the product. Yeah. <laughs> and they're selling everything they can of you. So, you know, just know that your image is out there in databases all around the world with billions of images. Number two, the question would be, is it right for PEMIS or some other similar service to legitimately legally collect your image and then put them in a large collection? It turns out, and this has occurred for decades, that the aggregation of public data, even if public, even if legal, has at times been ruled by the court not to be legal. <laughs> so I have no idea whether PEMIs or whatever might eventually be you know, told that what they're doing is illegal. Certainly public pressure, there have been companies that said the same thing, and then they were made to stop their services or they had to change their services or they had to ask for permissions. But in general, I would say to you, about PEMIs and other types of services, you're just seeing one example of what is probably out there a thousand times. Mm. Your image is all over the place being used by all kinds of nation states and even just regular commercial companies. The cat's out of the bag. You know, if you put your picture on the internet anywhere publicly, just, you know, assume it's gone. So that's what I would say, you know, could PEMIs and other services be sued for being involved in stalking somebody? You know, anybody can sue anybody for anything. Would they be held liable? It would depend on a judge or a jury, and juries are unpredictable creatures. I'd probably just go with two things. You know, one is 
your image is out there <laughs> and there's lots of people that are searching through it all the time or you're in big databases where you're being searched through all the time. And that really goes for all kinds of biometric attributes, right? Your fingerprints, whatever else you might have submitted before. There's nothing to say that, you know, if you do a fingerprint scan into your cell phone, that they're not reselling that fingerprint to some fingerprint database. I mean, they probably aren't, but there's nothing to say that they haven't and that they aren't. Just realize your biometric attributes are out there. Interestingly, when your face is out there or your fingerprints are out there, there's kind of two types of identification that are being done. One is like when you're logging onto your phone, your fingerprint, it's verification. You're claiming to be Hillary. Are you really Hillary, right? Verification is a one-on-one -on -one match. You're supposed to be the only account on that phone. Your fingerprints are supposed to be the only person on that phone and your fingerprints are being matched on the phone. The other type is identification, which is, okay, we submit your face to your fingerprint, and now we're going to compare you against, you know, billions of other people. What's interesting about it is that in my research, both types are really, really inaccurate. Like you'll hear from a vendor that says, oh, your fingerprint is the most accurate thing in the world. You know, your fingerprint's unique in the world. Well, it may be, but the way that your fingerprint or face is stored, captured, stored, and used by the biometric system is far from unique in the world. And let me say, vendors will always tell you, oh, we're, you know, it's unique in the world. Again, the only real statistic that counts is how unique it is as implied in the real world with that particular application. And they are not. Universally, every single biometric solution is hideously less accurate than the claim that the vendor makes. And I get it, they're a vendor, and they may even be accurate enough to be good for the application. But if you go to NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, United States NIST, they've probably done the most comprehensive public studies of fingerprint algorithms and facial algorithms as far as accuracy. And NIST has this goal where they would like the biometric systems to be only have one error out of 100,000. So that would be the goal. You know, one mistaken image, what's called a false negative or a false positive, either acceptance or rejection. In some cases, they've had 450 algorithms submitted, you know, for fingerprints or facial recognition, I forget which was which. But in none of the cases have any of the algorithms that are then implemented in the products nearly as accurate as what the NIST goal is. So the NIST goal is only one mistake out of 100,000. I think the most accurate system was 1.9%, which means about two errors out of every 100. So most cell phone vendors for your fingerprint scans and stuff say that their error rate they're looking for is 1 in 50,000 or 1 in 100,000. They're not that accurate, no matter what they say. And like, so my cell phone, I once took it into a classroom. It was 25 people, and I wanted to see if anybody could put their fingerprint on my phone and open it up. And there's 25 people. I handed it to the first guy. The first guy unlocked my phone. Oh, wow. And it's not just me. You can see, you know, if you go on the internet and YouTube and search for it, there's lots of people with those videos. And you can say, well, I just ran in the one in 50,000 or the one in 100,000. But the truth is, if you look at the most accurate images or algorithms for fingerprints and faces and also voice, NIST has fingerprints and faces and voice. There's another thing called like the voice challenge or something. The accuracy rates are not anywhere to what the vendors claim, the algorithms themselves. So, you know, 
I like to tell people that the accuracy just isn't what the vendor claim. The vendor's claiming that your face is unique, your fingerprint is unique, your voice print is unique, your keystroke usage, your cursor usage is unique, whatever the biometric trait is. That may be true. And then sometimes the vendors will go, oh, this, you know, fingerprint scanner is capable of, you know, detecting between one and 21 million different fingerprints or something. That's great. None of those claims matter. All that matters is the accuracy in the real world. And real world accuracy is far less than what the vendors claim, far less than what customers using it think. And I would say like your cell phone fingerprint, Hillary, is hideously inaccurate, but sometimes okay is okay, right? Like I I know that my fingerprint scanner on my cell phone is not that accurate, but I use it. I'm not putting nuclear secrets on my cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's inaccurate, but, you know, let's say that it's inaccurate to the point of maybe one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand. That means that, you know, all I'm worried about is someone steals my phone. Can they get on it? The thief stealing my phone is probably odds on not going to be able to get into my fingerprint scanner. And, you know, they'll just reset the phone and just, you know, just start using the phone like it was a brand new phone. And there's ways to bypass fingerprints and that sort of stuff. And that even plays into the PIMIs, you know, database and that sort of stuff is that, you know, they're not as accurate. You know, it's not like they're looking for Roger and they can find Roger every time. Although it's amazing, again, if you put in the image, how I think they're pretty accurate. but it brings up a whole lot of issues. It brings up privacy issues. You know, law enforcement, law enforcement wants to have everybody's fingerprints and retina scans and iris scans and voice prints. But like in, in the law enforcement thing, they usually require that one or two humans confirm the match before they go on after somebody. But it is all interesting. And I don't know where it's going to end up. But there does seem to be in general kind of an uprising by a lot of privacy advocates that don't think it's a good idea that these billions of images are out there being used by commercial companies. You know, and I think they have a valid point, even though I think, you know, cat's out of the bag and good luck stopping that freight train. Yeah. A couple of things that I have to contribute. So number one, as far as fingerprints go, it's funny, I have blisters on my fingers right now and my fingerprints are trash. I couldn't get into any of my stuff if I tried. (laughs) So it's just really frustrating until they heal. And hopefully once they heal, they're, you know, back to normal. And then second, when you're talking about romance scammers and reverse image lookup, I had a romance scammer approach me. It was around the same time that I started this job. So I don't know if they were just like messing with me because of, you know, the nature of what I do, what have you. But I couldn't reverse look up their image. And then I eventually found them. I don't remember how I went down a rabbit hole. They were using stills from YouTube videos. So they they found this man, the real man. His name is Jean Nadeau. He's from Quebec. And he is some kind of like motivational speaker, like, you know, smaller scale, but that's his bread and butter. And they found this man and he makes these videos and they're all in French. And I know very basic French, so I don't really fully understand what he's saying, but they took screenshots from that. And I thought that was an interesting tactic to kind of get around the reverse image lookup. Yeah, you know, what, what a lot of them are doing today is just creating them. They're using deep fake oh, programs yeah. and just creating fake artificial, Weird. beautiful women and yeah, men. Yeah. You know, that way you don't have to worry about the reverse lookup because it's just a fake image. So mm. that's what a lot of them are doing today. Okay. So the reverse lookup to find those sort of scammers becoming less powerful. And, it, you know, it's interesting, too. I used to tell romance scammers if, if they were trying to say, is this guy real? I say, well, tell him to hold up today's newspaper. I would tell them yeah. if they're real. And the guy's telling you that he has a Porsche, 
tell him to get in his Porsche and take a picture of him with his Porsche with his right hand out the window or left hand. I used to just make up these things like if he's real, he should be able to do this thing pretty quickly and prove mm-hmm. to you. Well, that really worked for a couple of years. And all of a sudden there became this point to where I would say, have them touch their right knee and hold up today's <laughs> newspaper. And boom, like 10 minutes later, that fake image was coming back. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, okay, my little trick isn't working anymore because now they have uh. deep fake technology. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can tell that there's a match, but the whole prove that they're real. Give me proof of life. I was amazed because, you know, these scammers are oftentimes in Nigeria and other places. Mm-hmm. I was just amazed of how quickly they were using cutting edge technology to, you know, make these deep fake images and stuff. It was like, okay, I guess that recommendation doesn't apply anymore. <laughs> I couldn't get over how long winded my romance scammer was. He just, I'm looking at the email that he sent me now and it was just so, it's just so much information, like just too much. No, no normal person would ever divulge this much information <laughs> right off the bat. It's just so funny. You want it, you like, and you can tell that they put in like buzzy terms, like, the Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, SNL, like just like throwing in all of those things that hopefully somebody would latch on to. It's just ugh. my favorite when I used to play with these romance scammers was to see how quickly I could get them to tell me that they loved me. Oh, yeah. I was you know, trying it was to do amazing. that. Like within an hour or two, they were telling me they loved me. <laughs> so I was replying to this guy and I was like trying to see like when he would you know be like all right i need money to come visit you or whatever and he never we never got there so i just stopped i was like all right i guess i'm just not that captivating that's okay (laughs) but he just wasn't we didn't get there i didn't i wasn't able to uh like just move the needle i couldn't yeah he didn't he sent me some celine dion songs and you know stuff like that but he didn't really he also never even really talked about me it's just all about him and i'm just like dude like if you want me to get buy-in, you should be asking me more questions about myself, not just telling me everything about you imaginable. It's wild. That's wild. your. That's the story you should write, how you can be a more yeah. successful romance scammer. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Do a better job. <laughs> anyway, if anyone gets an email from Raymond Ryan Wagner, it's not a real person. All right, next for us, I was thinking we could talk about how Canadian grocer... Sobe, their operations have been at a standstill since last week due to a cyber incident. From what I know, you might know, but from what I know, we're not like 100% sure that's ransomware, but it sure did sound like it. And this hack, this attack left computers and systems inoperable at over 1,500 stores, crippling the country's second largest supermarket chain. And the Canadian packaged meat producer Maple Leaf Foods was also hit in what we believe was a related attack impacting their production. And I was thinking about this, Roger, and when we talk about critical infrastructure being vulnerable to cyber criminal attacks, we often think about things like the electric grid being hacked, but, you know, colonial pipeline, things like that. But what about food supply chains and pharmacies? And I guess what can be done to help protect these industries as well? Well, you know, first of all, I'm like you, everyone's like, what is this? There's a lot of companies that are completely transparent about what happened. And then you've got the other ones that are the exact opposite. And I'm always amazed like why would you not tell people what happened maybe they don't know what happened they're just down but you're right i think probably the most easy explanation is ransomware even though we have a a local city i live near tampa florida and there's a local city down right now called dunedin which is uh, a lot of people like to visit they've been down for two weeks and again not telling people their emails down and you know you're like okay and i think they've said oh there's a network event i get asked to do what's called in the pr public relations game 
I get asked to do media responses to reporters every single day and every single attack, I'll get asked by four different reporters, hey, can you comment on this? And, you know, it's really hard to comment on something that's so common, especially if you don't have any details, right? But this is what I tell people is that, you know, regardless of what it is and that sort of stuff, what I would say is that every company needs to better concentrate on four things to better stop hackers and malware. You need to try to prevent social engineering using anything you can, a defense in depth combination of policies and technical defenses and education to stop social engineering and phishing attacks because social engineering and phishing attacks are involved in 70 to 90% of all attacks. And it is really because the world doesn't concentrate on that single thing alone that makes hacking and malware so successful. And it's been that way for decades since the beginning of computers. The second most common way that hackers and malware break in is unpatched software. Everybody should better patch their software, particularly the software that's on CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency's list, what's called Known Vulnerability Exploit Catalog. Known Vulnerability Exploit Catalog. That is a list of all the software and firmware vulnerabilities that are being used by real-world hackers to exploit real-world victims. You know, so last year there was over 20,100 different vulnerabilities that we're all told to patch, but CISA and other people have realized that, you know, only about two to 4% of any announced vulnerability is ever used by any real world attacker against any real world company. So really you don't have to patch 20,000 things. You just have to patch what's on the CISA known exploited vulnerability list and you can subscribe to it and get a list. And so what I tell people is your number one patching quest should be if you have a product that has a vulnerability, unpatched vulnerability that's on the CISA list, known exploited vulnerability catalog, you need to patch it ASAP. That should drive your patch management policy and process above all else. Number two, you should use phishing resistant multi-factor authentication when and where you can to protect valuable data because the third most number of attacks involve either password guessing or password theft. And if you're using phishing resistant MFA, then they can't steal your password. And then you're going to have to use passwords because MFA doesn't work everywhere. And you should use a password manager probably because your passwords need to be 20 characters, perfectly random or longer. So they can't be guessed or cracked, or they need to be 20 characters or longer if you make them up out of your head or longer, you know, basically using passphrases. No one likes to create or use truly random passwords or really long passwords. So I recommend using a password manager. So anytime you hear these attacks, two things. First of all, just take away with it. The first thing is that, eh, this is just who we're hearing about today. There's a whole lot more hacked companies. This isn't the only Canadian grocery store and meat processing packaged food plant that's hacked. There's so much hacking. Every time you hear this bank got hacked today, that's great. There's 10,000 other banks that are also hacked and you just don't know it. They don't know about it. You don't know about it. This is just one we're learning about today. So who got hacked is not nearly as important as knowing that there's a lot of compromised companies out there. So that's number one. And number two, the way that you protect yourself from all of these lessons is do a better job at preventing social engineering personally and professionally. Number two, Patch your software, especially the stuff that's on the CISA known exploited vulnerability catalog list. Number three, you should use phishing resistant MFA when and where you can to protect valuable data and system. And number four, you need to have really good, strong, different passwords for every website and service and application, which means you probably should be using the password manager. It is the inability of the entire world to better focus on those four recommendations 
for the reason why we have to suffer against so much hacking and malware. That's what I'll end this on is that literally if you do four things better, you significantly reduce the risk of being successfully hacked and ending up in a newspaper story. An excellent way to end the episode, Roger. Well, thank you as always. It was a pleasure speaking with you and I'm looking forward to next week. Me too. Take care, everyone. Continue to fight the good fight. Thanks, Roger. I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today was Roger Grimes, data-driven defense evangelist for Know Before, the world's first and largest new school security awareness training and simulated phishing provider that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering. 